Uh, This week uh, we do indeed turn to chapter 2 of Genesis as we continue our series looking at the early chapters of Genesis in order to lay foundations for life. That's what we're doing uh, over these weeks looking at these early chapters. Just last weekend I was uh, speaking to some friends of mine about uh, buying a house. Uh, As they spoke about the merits of buying a bungalow they made the very obvious but, but nonetheless crucial observation that checking that the foundations are deep and solid enough is essential if you have plans to build up into the roof and to add extra bedrooms in the loft space. Now that's what uh, these early chapters of Genesis are doing for us. They lay solid and firm foundations for life on which we can build our lives so that as we build, as we build up and out, uh, there won't suddenly be a sinking feeling or worse. Uh, Without these uh, solid and deep foundations, our lives you see, will eventually give way under the weight of the responsibilities of life or the troubles of life or indeed the big questions of life. It struck me this week as I was thinking about this that here at the beginning of the 21st century there are many huge uh, questions for us to grapple with, maybe more than than any other time uh, in the history of the world. The big issues of bioethics, of stem cell research, of, of ecology, of euthanasia, just to name a few. These issues raise raise huge questions for anybody, but not not least of all for the Christian. How do we determine what is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is evil behaviour? How do we work that out? These issues are are complex, and not least of of all for those of us over 40. Uh, For what was considered right almost universally in Britain 30, 40, 50 years ago is now questioned and even called wrong. Have you noticed that? So we need solid foundations. That's what we're doing over these weeks. Uh, according to Aristotle, I, I, I've not read any Aristotle, but I've heard this, uh, just in case. I don't want to sort of uh, bluff my way, blag my way through this moment. I, I read it in this book here. Um, but according to Aristotle and his followers, the great foundation we need to know is where life is heading. For unless we can determine what human beings are here for, said Aristotle, you can't say what is right and wrong. Now, Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, illustrates the point very simply like this. He says, imagine I'm a person from a very remote part of the world and I've never seen a cell phone, or a phone for that matter. You give it to me, and I immediately try to pound a stake into the ground with it. It breaks, of course, and I complain, this thing you gave me is no good. You will explain that the cell phone was not designed for driving stakes into the ground, but for communicating across distances. Unless you know the telos, that is the purpose for something, what it is for, you can't make right judgments about whether the thing is good or bad. Now these first chapters of the Bible tell us what we're here for. They tell us our meaning, uh, what everything indeed is here for. And more than that, they tell us that God is at the heart and centre of everything, that he made all things, and having made all things, he made us, Uh, and all things quite deliberately for a purpose. Now having those foundations help us to establish right and wrong. And having those foundations is wonderfully reassuring because the belief that we are made for a purpose is under great pressure today. So the historian Carl L. Becker famously said, and uh, this quote is on the handout, uh, from a strictly scientific viewpoint, human beings must be seen as little more than a chance deposit on the surface of the world, carelessly thrown up between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. Scientist Stephen Hawkins agrees that the human race is just a chemical scum 
on a moderate-sized planet. Now, if that's your conclusion, then moral categories of right and wrong are simply obsolete. But as we saw so clearly last time and the time before, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that we're not a mere accident. Indeed, the whole world was made for a purpose by a good God. And last time we saw what that purpose was. We were made to be in relationship with God. That's the goal of creation in Genesis. So the first creation account, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through to chapter, chapter 2 verse 3, we see the goal of creation in Genesis is to be in relationship with God. And you see that right at the end in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. Let me read those verses again for us. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd, done, uh, he'd been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now do you remember last time we looked into Hebrews chapter 4 and we saw that Sabbath rest, rest in the Bible, is all about being at eternal rest with God. It's about being in a right relationship with God. This day of rest says there's more to reality than just this creation. It says there's more to come than just this creation. It speaks of a final time, a time beyond this world, a time when God will rest with his people. That's where everything is heading. That's the point of life. That's what we were made for, to be in relationship with God. And that is the great blessing of life, to use the word that we read there in chapter 2, verse 3. The great blessing of life. The one true living God, the God who made the world, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a good and gracious and generous God. And his purpose in creation is the spread of life and blessing in the world. That's what he wants. That's what he's about. Life and blessing. Now again, we saw this in chapter 1. In case you think, oh, this is a lot of repetition. It's crucial for where we're going to go today. So hang on uh, with me. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Life and blessing is what we're looking for. Chapter 1, verse 22. God blessed them, that is the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Do you see? He makes the fish of the the, the sea and the birds of the air. He makes them. He brings life. And then he says, "Now, now may there be blessing right across the world. Life and blessing. Look again at chapter 2, verse 28. You'll see the same thing. Having made mankind. uh, Chapter 2, sorry, chapter 1, verse 28. I beg your pardon. Uh, chapter 1, there isn't, a, there isn't a verse 28 in chapter 2, is there? You'd have been confused there if I hadn't noticed that. I'm sure I told 9.15 to look at chapter 2, verse 28, and I've only just realised my notes are wrong. Chapter 1, verse 28, the same point, mankind. Having made mankind, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. See, God creates, he gives life, and then he wants to bless the whole world. Blessing. God is about bringing life and blessing to the world. The life and blessing of being at rest with our creator. That's the ultimate thing, as we've already seen. Now, all of that is introduction. We get on to understanding Genesis chapter 2 now. To read uh, chapter 2 correctly, we must understand that chapter 2 runs parallel to chapter 1. Don't think that the details of chapter 2 follow chapter 1 or you'll run into problems. It's not a sort of chronological thing. The obvious, most obvious problem comes when you read verse 7 and the creating of Adam. If you think chronologically, you'll look back to chapter 1, verses 26 to 30 and say, but I thought mankind had already been created. 
See, rather than see chapter 2 as happening chronologically after 1, see them as happening simultaneously. But where chapter 1 looks through a wide-angle lens, giving us a view of of everything in creation, chapter 2 zooms in on the creation of the world, of the Garden of Eden, of the creation of mankind. Uh, Think of it in terms of Google Earth. It's a remarkable resource. You can view the Earth from space, see see the globes from, from miles up. And that, in a sense, is Genesis chapter 1. But with just the click of a button, you can zoom in to the continent of Europe or zoom in further to England or further to Yorkshire or even further to Sheffield or even your street. You haven't moved on in time. You're just looking now in more detail. That, in a sense, is what's happening in chapter 2 of Genesis. And so as we look at chapter 2, we should see the the, the, the same things quite deliberately happen in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. But now in chapter 2 it's up close and personal. But we should see the same things going on. And really the heading uh, tells us that. Uh, Look at the beginning of this section, chapter 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's... uh, It's just the same, isn't it? Almost the same as chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creating heavens and earth. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 4. See the parallel. Now again, stay with me as I just take us through that parallel and then you'll see why why that's so crucial when we come uh, towards the end. So, uh, in uh, in chapter 1 we saw God created a good world. We'll expect to see that in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we read the constant refrain that the world that God created was good. I've put those uh, references on the handout. God created a good creation. Now, here in chapter 2, we don't just hear it, we don't just hear it stated that God created a good world. Here we have it described. And in the description, we feel how good God's creation is. Look at verse 9. Now the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. What a good world. Look at the variety of the trees that God made. Different sizes, different shapes, different shades of green and in the autumn even reds and oranges and yellows. And each kind of tree producing different kinds of fruit. What did we hear a few weeks ago from Julian Hardiman? Pears and plums and peaches and pomegranates and that's just a few that begin with P. And so as we read verse 9, the trees God made were all pleasing to the eye and good. There's our word good, you see, good for food. God created a good world. That was stated in chapter 1, now it's described in chapter 2. And the description of this place as it goes on makes us feel how good it is. Look at verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there, or maybe pearls, rather than aromatic resin. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and so on. What a place the Garden of Eden is. It had a river. I love being beside water. I love it. Uh, I love going to the seaside, but I love going to streams as well. On a hot summer's day, being beside water is cool and refreshing and reviving. On a cold winter's day, it's turbulent and powerful and majestic. Why, here's a river flowing through the garden. You see how good this creation is? 
And this place has a richness about it in every sense of that word. Verse 12, it is laden with gold and precious stones. It is beautiful. What a good world God created. And so that we don't miss how good it is, that's the very word used in verse 12. The gold of that land is good. See, what chapter 1 told us, chapter 2 is describing for us in more detail. God created a good world. Then second we saw in chapter 1, and we're now over the, over the page on the handout if you're following it, God made everything in creation. Now in chapter 1 we read that God made everything, living, every living creature, uh, and that he made mankind. Now again, I put the references on there. It was right through the chapter. Here in chapter 2 we, we're told how intimately God was involved in his creation in the creation of uh, the animals and of mankind. In the, the animals, look at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. Here's a picture of the, the master craftsman modelling clay and creating not lifeless statues, but living creatures. He did the same with mankind. Look at verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. God is, um, if I can put it this, this way, hands-on as he creates us. And so hundreds of years later, as we've already heard in this service, the psalmist will write, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's not a scientific description, it's not meant to be. But it does say a big fat boo to the deists those who hold the view that God created the world and then just left it alone, you know, those who, who think that God wound the, the world up as like winding up a clock and then just stepped back to let it run, that's not it at all, is it? God is hands-on. God is involved in creation, if I can use this phrase, getting his hands dirty, fashioning and forming the animals and mankind, you see? Now, it's the same point as chapter 1, but you see how rich it is. God created a good world. God made everything in creation. Third, we, we saw from chapter 1 that, that God made mankind in his own image. Now, we saw that in, in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We, we saw, when we looked at that two weeks ago, that that was, uh, as it were, the pinnacle of creation. Now, again, we see that in more detail in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 again. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. God breathed life into the man. And of course there's the difference between mankind and the animals. Yes, God made us, we are creatures, and he made us out of the dust of the ground, which is just the way he made the animals and the birds, verse 19. But God did something quite different. Did you notice the difference between verse 19 and verse 7? He breathed the breath of life into mankind's nostrils. We are made in God's image. Of course, today, some people want to tell us that we're no different from the animals. Scientists tell us that our, our makeup is, what is it? Is it something like 98% the same as a rat? I'm not always surprised by that when I see the way some people live, but that's another point. Um, and then they conclude that we're no different from the animals. Genesis chapter 2 says, of course we're 98% the same as a rat, because we and rats and all other animals are made of the same stuff. We were formed out of the dust of the ground. But God breathed his breath of life into us. We are made in the image of God and in that sense we are completely different to the animals. 
And what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, again, we saw this last time. Last time we saw that it means, uh, second point on, uh, under this heading on the, on the handout, it means that we, we should rule the world. You remember that from chapter 1, verse 26? God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and so on. Same point in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. See, God is the ruler, God is the great ruler. No, no ruler like him. And so being made in his image, he made us to rule. To rule the world under his ultimate rule. And in chapter 2, we see that being worked out as Adam named the animals and the birds. Verse 19 and 20. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. Now you see, naming is a sign of authority, a mark of our rule. Once again, we see how different we are to the rest of creation. Oh, yes, we are made, but we're different. Only we are given responsibility to rule the world by caring for the world. Only humans. The dolphins don't have to look after the seas. The chimps and lions aren't given responsibility to look after the land. They can do whatever they want to do, but we have responsibility for it. And finally, under this section being made in God's image, in chapter 1, verse 27... We were told that God made mankind male and female. And in chapter 2 we see that. But again, if I can use this phrase, it's kind of fleshed out. You see it at the end in chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. He made them male and female. Not just now a statement, but you see it happening. So do you see how chapter 2 tells us much that is the same as chapter 1? Because chapter 2 is zooming in on the detail of chapter 1. God created a good world. We see that in both chapters. Uh, God made everything in creation. We see that in both chapters. God made mankind in his own image. We see that in both chapters. And so we would expect to see in both creation accounts that fourthly, God's purpose in creation is to spread life and blessing. See, we saw it at the end of the first creation narrative in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And we see it here in the second creation narrative. And this is the really big point that we want to stay on uh, today. Life and blessing. So look again at verse 10 of chapter 2. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. And then of course we get the description of of the river going into four headwaters and going all over the world. Why is that all about life and blessing? Well, a river, uh, water, is a source of life and growth, life and blessing. Uh, you, you've seen the pictures, haven't you, when there's, there's been no water in the desert for a long time and then suddenly the water's come and life pops up all over the place. This one river in Eden, separated into four headwaters, flows out to the whole world. God bringing life and blessing all over the world. And then, of course, there's Adam. And we saw in chapter 1 that he too was to be about taking life and blessing to the world and that's the point of verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Yes, in relationship with God we are to work in the world, caring for the world, to bring life and blessing all over the world. 
You see, at this point, in chapter 2, at this point in the history of the world, the command of chapter 1, verse 28 has not yet been satisfied. Mankind has not yet filled the earth or subdued it. Man is to do that by working and caring for the world. And as we'll see in a few weeks' time at the end of this chapter, mankind is to fulfil this command of chapter 1, verse 28 through marriage and populating uh, the world as well. But this week we'll just look at the place of work in the world and how work was to be a way of spreading life and blessing all over the world, for that's what it means to be at rest. Indeed, using that word work in this context is quite arresting, isn't it? Work in verse 15 is part of the rest of chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Rest in the Bible is not the absence of work. Rest is being at peace with God, right with God. Again, in this context, we see that work is good. It's part of God's good creation. But then we know that from our experience. We all know the satisfaction, I guess, of a good day's work. We know how good it is to fall into bed at night, maybe exhausted after a long day's work, but knowing that we haven't frittered our time away, used it well. It feels good to work hard, doesn't it? Work is good, it is satisfying. But it must not be the ultimate thing We must not uh, uh, find in work our purpose and ultimate satisfaction. That can only be found in our relationship with God. And I'll come back to that that point in a moment. For now, we see from verse 15 that Adam was put in the garden to work it and take care of it. Even a cursory reading of the text will tell us that that work ranges from manual labour to academic work. A manual labour, obviously gardening, digging, planting. And the academic work, did you spot it? Zoological study, naming the animals, verse 19. What great fun that must have been for Adam. Whenever I read this, I imagine Adam saying to himself, I'll call, I'll call that a, a hippopotamus. And that one, duckbill platypus. Uh, and I'll call that one a cockatoo, and that one a meerkat. And I always imagine that at the end of the day, at the end of a long day, was when Adam was tired and low on inspiration, having named all these animals, and then came past him a fly. And he says, what does that do? It flies, I'll call it a fly. Well, I don't know. The point is this. There is huge scope in this idea of work in the garden. Now, let me uh, quote from from one uh, writer, uh, Julian Hardiman. This is how, how he puts it. Now, he calls this work the... Uh, the, the work of mankind, the human cultural project. Now, don't be thrown by that. He's really just talking about the work of mankind in the garden. He says this, It includes agriculture and poetry, science and cities, technology and sport. What the first people were being told to do was to work together to develop all the vast potential of the world God had made. What did the cultural project include? Technology and manufacturing for a start, The gold in them thar hills needed digging out and smelting and making into rings and bracelets and eventually plugs for hi-fi systems. Then there was science. Look at Adam naming all the animals in verse 19. That was the beginning of scientific classification. But it was more than scientific classification. Included was the whole scientific enterprise of investigation, experiment, calculation and analysis. Then there's human creativity in the arts. Adam met Eve and what happened? He wrote a little poem about her in verse 23. In creation, God showed when he had made a thousand kinds of finch and a hundred thousand kinds of lily that he was an artist. People were to be like him. 
Part of the human cultural project was to be artistic, to work out how to use natural materials to create, using pigments to make paint and pottery, finding out the process by which you can turn clay and animal bones into bone china, learning to hack big hunts of rock out of hills for Michelangelo's to carve exquisite marble statues, finding out that it wasn't just birds that could sing, but people, and that metal and wood and varnish and catgut could make guitars and pianos and didgeridoos. And so it goes on. The human cultural project has the seeds of academic and intellectual life, of architecture and town planning, of community leadership and politics, of government. That's good, isn't it? Michael Whitmer makes the same point. He suggests that in verse 15, God was telling mankind to work at the resources of the world to try to grow more wheat with less energy, pound the earth's metals into cars and musical instruments, master the lengthy process of turning the extra wool on a lamb into a sweater. Whether it would be manual labour or academic work and all the other things we've mentioned by quoting those writers, there's nothing inherently bad about work. Quite the opposite, work is good. But again, I don't need to tell you that. I guess we've all known something of the satisfaction of doing a good, honest day's work, whether that be working hard at the office and getting paid for it or doing something voluntary about, uh, about the house, some DIY around the home. For work here is not paid employment. But again, remember the bigger point and the reason that I gave us all that sort of stuff at the beginning. Adam was to bring life and blessing to the world through this work. And that helps us to keep work in its right place. Let's not for one minute think that in work we can find ultimate satisfaction. No, we are ultimately satisfied only in relationship with the Lord. That's what uh, Genesis 2 is about. That's what we saw in Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3. Relationship with the Lord is the goal of creation. I was created by Jesus and for Jesus. I wasn't created for work. Work's important, it's part of what I'm to do, but I wasn't created for work. So you see, if Adam had made gardening or animal naming his focus in life, if he said, the goal of my life is to want to work at London Zoo or to present Gardener's World in place of Alan Titchmarsh or whoever it does it now, if that had been Adam's goal in life, he wouldn't have needed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he'd have already committed idolatry. He would be making something else the ultimate thing other than God. So yes, work is good. But we must beware of finding significance in our work, the ultimate significance in our work. Will you then ask yourself, do I find significance in what I do? Do I gain worth because of the job I have? Do I value others by what they do? Do I accept others on the basis of their achievements in their career? Between leaving theological college and being ordained as a clergyman, I was uh, technically unemployed for a few weeks. Uh, During that time, I went on a a training weekend for a Christian camp uh, that I'd be involved in a bit later on in the summer. And uh, I met a, a, a bunch of people that I'd never met before on that weekend. Inevitably, they asked me, what do you do for a living? It's a good question. It's a good conversation starter. But rather than say, I've just left theological college and I'm going to be ordained at the end of June, I said, I'm between jobs. And it was very revealing how some people's approach and attitude towards me was affected when they heard that I was unemployed. 
See, too often even Christians find their worth in their work and, their value, and they value others on the basis of, of others' career progression. Now from Genesis chapter 2 alone we can see that we're not to find ultimate satisfaction in work. But as we move to Genesis chapter 3 we see that all the more. Turn over if you will with me to chapter 3 verses 17 to 19. Now we'll be looking at this uh, in more detail in a few weeks so I am jumping the gun here a little but I feel we have to look ahead because although we're studying Genesis chapter 2 we no longer live in Genesis chapter 2 land. That's gone. We now live in Genesis 3 land. Sin is in the world and that has changed everything and not least of all how we'll feel about work. So what do we read in Genesis chapter 3? Because um, Adam... Uh, ate of the the tree that he was told not to uh, because he followed what Eve said he should do. God then curses various parts of creation. And we read in chapter 3, verse 19, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Do you see, because of the fall and the curse work will never be all that it might have been in Eden. Work in Genesis 3 land, in the land we now live is hard and painful. But again, you don't need me to tell you that. If I asked how many of you had found work uh, in the last week frustrating, I guess most, if not all hands, would be raised. We know that work is painful now. Again, we're not only talking about paid employment. We know the frustration of Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. At home, too. I'm growing to quite like gardening uh, since I planted a little vegetable patch last uh, last, uh, last year. I like it, but it's also very frustrating. You can spend the weekend getting the garden looking quite reasonable and in no time it's out of control. Weeds all over the place. Thorns and thistles dominating. Isn't that right? The point is clear. In Genesis 3, land, our work can never be as enjoyable as it might once have been. So work is good, Genesis chapter 2. It is part of God's good creation, but now, Genesis 3, work is painful. So I meet with men who are frustrated with their work. They don't enjoy their job. They find it at times simply overwhelming. That's Genesis chapter 3. But then when they're made redundant, they can't cope because they're made to work. Work is part of living in God's world. It's Genesis chapter 2. Work is like a stormy lover. I can't live with it, I can't live without it. So it's not exactly an appropriate thing for a vicar to say, is it? Anyway, and that's the result of the fall and the curse. So let me say it clearly and deliberately, you will not find significance in your work. You're not meant to. You weren't meant to in Genesis chapter 2, and now that we're in Genesis chapter 3 land, in all the land of painful toil, work cannot even be what it was meant to be in Genesis 2. That is true for all people, even for Christians even if we're sure that our relationship with Jesus Christ is the place of fulfilment and significance. It's crucial to have that clear because it will rescue me from from much heartache and soul-searching. I'll I'll deal with this um, in more detail in 
in a few weeks' time. You see, the heartache and soul-searching that comes at, um, when, when somebody's made redundant or when they retire, if they've made their work the ultimate thing, not only are those moments difficult for all sorts of other reasons, but, but their, their whole world collapses. And ultimately, of course, um, getting this clear rescues me from feeling that I've wasted my life when I come to that final moment of death. Having this understanding of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 then puts everything in perspective. We live in Genesis 3 land, a land that has rejected God. So yes, work is still necessary for life. It is part of God's good creation. But it's not sufficient to bring life and blessing to the world. Not anymore. Work can never bring eternal life and the blessing of relationship with God. Oh, it's still important, but it's not the way the world is going to be restored and redeemed to be all that it will one day be in the new creation. It doesn't matter how hard we work on environmental issues or social issues or healthcare issues or in counselling or in politics or in family welfare. It doesn't matter how hard we work, these things will not bring eternal life and the blessing of relationship with God to the world. That comes only through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Working to bring about these other things is not a bad thing. But we must realise that outside of Christ there is no life and no blessing. And so now, because we live in Genesis 3 land, our primary concern must be the gospel. The gospel of life and peace, eternal life and peace with God. That's the goal of life. It always was. It was the goal of life in Genesis 2. But now we live in a fallen world. Men and women know eternal life and peace with God only as they come to know forgiveness and reconciliation through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, let's work and care for the world. But let's let's care so much for the world that we work to bring to the world the gospel of Christ that is the source of life and blessing for the whole world. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, that we have been reminded and seen again that you are a good God, a generous God, a gracious God, full of grace to your creation. We thank you that you always from the first moment showed your goodness and generosity and grace in in wanting life and blessing to this wonderful creation. And although we see that in Genesis 1 and 2, we thank you we see it even more supremely now as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and as we look at his cross where we see again how good and generous and abundantly gracious you are in sending the Lord Jesus, that although we deserve none of it, uh, you gave us not only life, but eternal life and the great blessing of being restored in relationship with you. Help us to work towards that uh, for others' sake and for your glory. Amen.